Hi, this is presenter Crystal Dinapoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. And as always, I would like to acknowledge that the lands in which we are broadcasting from today are the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, whose sovereignty was never ceded. Uh, And I want to acknowledge them and their continued connection to these beautiful lands, skies and waterways. What we're moving on to now is um, last week, or last week's show, I had decided to focus on sharing some of my own writing. As I was reflecting a lot on how the week prior, I had missed out on Indigenuity due to speaking at Melbourne Writers Festival. This was my first time speaking there. Um, It was a very fun occurrence and I got to speak at a couple of different events. And so instead, Indigenuity was uh, hosted by the wonderful Darug researcher Maddie Miller, as well as Alex Watts, who is once again with me (laughs) every single week, uh, keeping quiet, hiding in the shadows, but essentially keeping Indigenuity uh, running. (laughs) So definitely worth the shout out. So last week, I ended up sharing one of the stories that I wrote for one of the events, which was called Queer Stories. And that was a story uh, reflecting on uh, my own childhood, my relationship with my mother and my sisters, and also the running theme of the stars, the seven sisters, um, the, the way that they've appeared in my life. Um, and then I also shared an excerpt which was hi- from my book. Uh, I co-authored with a fellow Gomoroi astronomer, Carly Noon, which is called Astronomy Sky Country. And it's, part, it's the fourth book in the First Knowledges series by Tamsin Hudson and the National Museum of Australia. And so I shared an excerpt from it highlighting the threat that's currently facing Gomoroi country and in particular um, threatening our precious Pilliga forest. So um, last week I intended to share a third story. It was a second excerpt from the book, but we actually ran out of time. And so I thought it would be fitting to continue with that theme and be able to share it today. So to be specific, I'm going to read uh, from page 42 onward from this book that we've co-authored together, me and Carly. This is within the second chapter of our book, which is titled Indigenous Ways of Knowing. And this piece is called Sky Informing About the Land. And I was really proud of this piece in the way that I tried to capture the nature of interconnectedness using a thread and a weaving analogy, talking about all the endless ways in which the skies reflect the land for us. And so I just wanted to share that all with you now. So a little peek taster of our book for anyone who hasn't actually um, interacted with it or hasn't read it themselves. The big rip across the sky is not just home, the home of many of our many beloved dark sky constellations, but also stands as a visual remnant of a critical moment during the dreaming. To some, the land and the sky were initially one. The universe was a whole until it was ripped in two. The Milky Way's dark shadow is the scar that remains, showing the boundary between the land and the sky world above. The belief that the land and sky were originally one until they diverged resonates through many nations' dreaming traditions. Despite this division, the land and the skies are intrinsically... <clears throat> Sorry, my getting a bit of a cough today. <clears throat> oh, I've got a drink. So apologies on air. Despite this division, the land and the skies are intrinsically and ceaselessly interlinked. What is observed in the sky is mirrored on the land, and what is observed on the land is echoed in the sky. 
We see this in Gamilaray Ualii traditions, such as the connection between the land and the sky emus, which is a common story which we've shared a lot on indigenuity, the connection between Garagai, the emu in the sky for Gomorrah culture, and also with its relationship to the Dinawan emu of the ground. And so this is taught to us by Gamilaray Ualii lawman Uncle Giller Michael Anderson, but is also repeated by many others. On the opposite side of the country, Narajan elder Uncle David Malajalai from the Kimberley region in Western Australia teaches us that everything under creation is represented in the soil and in the stars. Everything has two witnesses, one on earth and one in the sky. Everything is represented in the ground and in the sky. The endless interrelations between ecological, medicinal, celestial and technological knowledge systems illustrate the sky and land's fundamentally interconnected nature. If we allow ourselves to represent the links between these areas of understanding as a fine thread, we can observe the ways in which this thread weaves in and out of all areas of knowledge. For example, we may begin with our understanding of the position of a single star in the sky. It could be any star, perhaps, perhaps Alcyone, the brightest star in the Pleiades star cluster, renowned in indigenous astronomical traditions for forecasting seasonal change. Or perhaps Alpha Crucis, the brightest star of the Southern Cross, which often serves as a navigational device directing indigenous astronomers southward. We note the star's position and we pierce it with our thread, readying ourselves to make our next link. We follow the thread through to our understanding of how this star's position is shifting in our sky. Heading out each night and looking for our star of choice, we carefully observe its path. Observing Alcyone over the course of a year, it becomes apparent that it rests at varying heights in the sky depending on our day of viewing. If we are far south on the continent, we realise that Alpha Crucis is circumpolar, meaning that it never sets below the horizon as it rotates around a set point in the sky called the South Celestial Pole. We take this observation and pierce it again with our thread, acknowledging that we have related our stars to an understanding of the flow of time and the movement of the skies itself. We may then notice that our days are long and hot when Alcyone lies high above us at night. We start to associate this star and its movement with the heat and pierce this knowledge with our thread, extending our system of knowledge from astronomical positions into the forecasting of seasonal change. In Gamilaray traditions, Alcyone and the rest of the Pleiades are sacred woman's business. The Pleiades are known as a group of sisters, Ice maidens called Marae Marae, or Mie Mie, who touch the ground as they set below the winter horizon. For the Gamilaray and many other nations, they bring frost. In traditions from southern parts of the western desert, the Pleiades are known as Kankarankara, and their rising marks the Ninya cold season from May to September. They act as a signpost for the time of year when local women collect various vegetable foods, such as grass seeds. Again, we weave our thread through this understanding, coupling astronomical knowledge to that of season, seasonal changes in native plant cycles. Similarly, in Naranjeri traditions, if the Pleiades are making their highest altitude in the sky during early morning, 
it indicates the onset of the flowering of yam daisies. This leads us to join knowledge of the stars and the plants to our local food economy. Another thread then might link the migratory patterns of a local animal to the fruiting of said flower. There are threads about local schedules in fire farming and ceremonial practices and weather patterns, and so on. The threads that pierce each and every single thing in our universe, from people and animals to every grain of soil, every drop of water in our river systems, and every star in the sky, are infinite in number. Our initial thread has revealed a network, much like a spider's web, that quickly becomes a complex woven blanket extending into all of time and space. Suppose we follow a thread that couples the Gawaragai in the sky, which is the emu in the sky, with the Dinawan of the land, so the emu of the land. In that case, we find a layered and intricate mesh reaching into both many aspects of both land and sky. We see how this one constellation informs us of animal behaviour throughout the year. The Dinawan's movements and breeding cycles echo those of Guaragai above. We see tethers that hold our understanding of the changes in our climate. We meet the cold nights of winter when Guaragai is high and know that the Dinawan is roosting and protecting the Gawu when Guaragai is low and Gawu are eggs. The dry, arid conditions of summer encourage the Dinawan to speak, seek comfort. Immutable bonds draw the skies onto the land, into the animals and water and food sources. This depth of knowledge about Gawaragai comprises only the top layers of a very intricate, multi-layered and holistic knowledge system, much of which is not public knowledge outside of the communities to which the knowledge belongs. The dark emu has interpretations and ties that run deep within the varied nations of these lands, from the Burong, who know it as a human-eating goliath named Chingle, representing the emu as it was more than 10,000 years ago when Megaforma roamed the continent, to those living under Kakatha skies who know it as Kalia, and the Wiradjuri folk who call it Gugurman. In acknowledging the vastness of these knowledge systems and the spiralling depth of their interconnected layers, we encounter fundamental incompatibilities when we try to capture them in a static written form, like this book. The extent of the knowledge and how it's communicated is endless, limited only by the number of nations and knowledgeable people. How the skies inform the land varies from country to country. Interpretation is largely unique to each nation and extends so deeply into all facets of human experience and understanding that writing it down changes it imposing a stillness on this knowledge. There is more to the dark emu than we can possibly include here. There is more to the sky-land relationship than we can present in words, because words have limits, and because, as two young yinas, which is the Gamilaray term for women, navigating our way through the two worlds of being Gamilaray and astrophysicists, we don't hold all of this knowledge. So I hope that was interesting for you all. Um, it's exploring this concept of interconnectedness, which is a fundamental feature to Aboriginal knowledge systems. We wrote a book called Astronomy Sky Country, centering on Aboriginal astronomy. And, you know, it's um, through that process, realising just how impossible it is to authentically capture Aboriginal astronomy as a topic without needing to talk about all other areas of Aboriginal knowledge.
Our sky country is a reflection of this land that we're on and it is constantly informing us of these processes on our land from things like seasonal change and tracking cycles for our plants and our animals as well as uh, communicating our stories, histories, laws and moral lessons um, and navigating right across country. So sky knowledge is... Yeah, it's intrinsically linked to every other area of knowledge and trying to capture that through this analogy of a a thread, which we can weave through all parts, essentially reveals that a thread that does so will end up being a intricate mesh like a blanket because it's not just as simple as the emu in the sky relates to the emu on the ground, but once again, that feature can tell us many, many things. I want to take our attention back to Indigenous astronomy. Uh, Once again, um, I want to talk about... Uh, an issue oh, an issue that I've brought up before that I think is really important and I think not enough people are speaking about it so I feel compelled to be that person who annoys you uh, about these topics. So for some, so for some context, right, before if you've been here um, for at least the last 10-15 minutes, uh, I gave a, I read out an, out an excerpt from the book that I've co-authored with fellow Gomorroi astronomer Carly Noon, which is called Astronomy Sky Country, and it's exploring this wonderful world of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander astronomy. And in that excerpt that I read out before, I really tried to highlight how Aboriginal astronomy is never only just about astronomy. Our knowledge systems are so fundamentally interconnected that they are constantly, so sky knowledge is constantly telling us about so many processes on the land, in particular things like seasonal cycles for a lot of our plants and animals, which is so extensive. It's amazing how much the skies can help guide us um, with forecasting our seasons and how to properly manage and care for uh, a lot of the plants and animals that we feel a responsibility to protect and care for, as well as telling us about things like weather prediction, very handy um, topics to know, how to navigate cross country, informing us about when to conduct ceremonies, um, helping us communicate our laws and our histories. So Aboriginal astronomy is never, ever, ever just about astronomy. And so there is this very um, important but also delicate relationship with the skies and the land. And so when we start to make quick, harsh changes to these systems, we are risking the continuity and the accuracy of Aboriginal knowledge systems. And some of the things, the stresses that are really pushing on this, the, one of the largest ones is things like climate change. So uh, our, our ecosystems are being really challenged. Um, we are losing a lot of species Uh, We are unfortunately seemingly looking at uh, a very hard future um, with climate uncertainty. Not to scare people, I I don't want to be too much of a downer. Um, But a lot of these changes have made a lot of our knowledge systems inaccurate. You know, animals and plants aren't behaving the ways that they normally would in the conditions in which they've evolved to adapt to over thousands of years. So um, one of the other stresses that we have, I won't be talking about climate change um, in that way or anything for the rest of for, for the rest of this segment, but I do think it's important to note that is one of the biggest contributors. But another issue is one that I've talked about quite often, which is actually light pollution. And so in knowing that Aboriginal astronomy is so fundamentally interconnected and that these stars in our skies are reference points for a lot of our stories, which is where we encode our knowledge and our histories into... You can sort of start to think of the skies as a stellar library. 
right? Um, when we want to access our knowledge, it's so much of it is encoded and related to the skies that we can see these constellations and features. We can see the way in which they're positioned or maybe the way their appearances are changing. Like that's very common for a lot of weather prediction and for season forecasting seasonal change, seeing the way that stars might be changing colour or they might be twinkling faster or in a different manner than usual. So it is all of these different ways that we can read the skies which help inform the way that we then proceed on the land. And so once you start to hide that library through light pollution, you start to hide our books, our encyclopedias. So light pollution is something that takes, um, it takes, uh, I guess, like the, uh, many different forms. Ultimately, it's all light pollution, but there are different ways in which we experience it in our environment. Um, pretty common uh, forms of light pollution. One is over-illumination. So this is just, we put so many bloody lights on uh, businesses, like their buildings and other places which do not need to be illuminated at night and it is completely unnecessary. And sometimes we put an excessive amount of lights to really draw in uh, the people's gaze, which is just a absolute nightmare. And I'll explain why it's a nightmare, okay? I'm just starting off with what light pollution is to begin with, but I'll explain why it's actually a concern and not just something that is a little bit of a non-issue, might just be an issue for astronomers, which is such a niche group of people. It might be a cultural heritage issue, which affects a very large group of people, but it affects so much more about our life, human and animal life in particular, which people are just not aware of. So that's what I really want to hammer home today. Some other things I think are pretty concerning. So light pollution also takes the form of something called glare, um, which we've all experienced in one way or another. But I found it very interesting. There, um, I've forgotten the name of the person and I'm so sorry. Uh, they do marvellous work. Uh, my brain just doesn't retain information at the moment. But they were fascinating because they broke up this idea of glare into three subcategories, talking about the different ways that we can experience glare, which might seem a bit sort of over the top to people who don't know about it. But I found it so fascinating because we start off with like a really basic level of something that's called discomfort glare, which is just like when there's a bit of like light that's sort of rebounding into our eyes or something, it makes things a little bit hard to see. It's just a little annoying, just a little discomforting. But then we move up to disability glare, where it's the type of um, light entering your environment, which can completely disable your ability to see and to be able to operate safely in that environment. And that can be particularly dangerous for drivers if you aren't expecting to experience something like that. And then the third one, the most serious one, is actually called blinding glare, which isn't that temporary loss. I mean, like that temporary, like, oh, it's in my face, I can't see. But it's actually when light is so bright that even when you look away from it or remove yourself from it, it still impacts your ability to see for a while afterwards. Then we also have um, this idea of light trespass, which is fascinating. So it's just like the same concept of trespassing onto others' property, but doing so through light. So if you have neighbours who have lights that are shining in on your windows, this is a form of light pollution that's called light trespass. So once again, even if you're doing the right thing, but others aren't, this can impact your life. And then the final one is sky glow, which I like to think of as sort of like the culmination of all of these different types of light pollution into the one. Because sky glow is that eerie purple pinky tinge hum that hangs over Melbourne that completely drowns out all of our stars well the majority of them and as someone who grew up in the country this is something I'm still not adjusted to and I find that when I go to even back home to my town and I'm in the middle of my town and I'm seeing so many more stars than I ever get to see in Melbourne I still have my friends and family going oh the lights here have gotten so terrible, the stars have gotten here have gotten so terrible, there's too much lighting, this is awful. And it's like, crap, like if, if I can't even remember how beautiful these stars were before my town started changing, and now I've just adjusted as well to Melbourne's life where we see no stars, 
it's something that um, you don't realise as an absence of once you either adjust to it or you're born without it. There are a lot of people in Melbourne who, if you don't venture out into the country, probably don't really know what a normal dark sky looks like. And so it's not just a matter of stars, but it's also these beautiful dark spaces found within our Milky Way and other areas of our sky, which are so unique to Southern Hemisphere skies. So we are not just missing stars, but we are missing beautiful, subtle features that are so stunning and inspiring that you don't get to experience living here in Melbourne. Uh, so the reason that I'm talking about light pollution, why it's such an issue is because it's known that this adversely affects many species and ecological communities. It can change behavior and physiology. It reduces survivorship and reproductive output. So this genuinely is killing our species, which you wouldn't expect, right? It's just a little lights. What are lights going to do? Lights do a lot. And also, I think, but I'll, once again, I'll get into that in a second as to what's actually happening to a lot of our beautiful native species. But I wanted to bring up um, some of the reasons why people think light pollution is a necessity. Because quite often, I feel like light pollution in a certain environment is equated with safety. I know that when I'm, you know, feeling a bit nervous after wanting to walk home, you know, I, you know, I feel better when there are lights around. And I've always assumed that a well-lit street is one in which I'll be safer upon. And so it's so fascinating studies that are emerging about this concept because actually a heavily lit space can actually be more dangerous for people to walk or travel through. And the reason for this is because when you have such a bright space, those outskirts areas, those alleyways or other ends of the road that look very dark, you are unable to see into. With lights, which are way more subtle, you bring them down, you make it a nice warm red light, something to illuminate, you are able to not only see those lit spaces better, but those dark spaces that probably make you a bit nervous that you can't see, your eyes will be adjusted to see them better. So it, it is fascinating the way all of the way light pollution and light present in our environment affects so many different areas of people's industries and works of the way that we live our lives. But the thing that I want to bring up right now is the adverse effects that it's having on our beautiful animals. So there are, for pretty much all species, ourselves included, we rely on cues from night and dark time to, uh, <laughs> it helps all of us, like animals and humans combined. So I know this is probably going to sound a bit weird, um, <laughs> listing some of these things with humans there, but it helps um, for all species in being able to hunt, um, to know when to uh, have certain cycle, like certain stages in their reproductive cycles. So when to breed, when should you should be birthing. Um, to be able to sleep, there is a lot of uh, physiological processes which happen, which only happen when we have dark night sleep. And it sort of made me a little bit scared because <laughs> as humans, which I won't dive into too deeply, um, there are strong links to things like Alzheimer's as well as cancers forming if you have light present when you go to sleep. Apparently, as humans, we need a very dark environment with uninterrupted sleep for our brain to clear out a lot of the, I've forgotten the name of the specific chemicals because I am not a chemist or a biologist, um, that we have in our brains that actually only get flushed out when we, have, we are producing enough melatonin, which only happens when we are sleeping in very dark conditions um, and also links to cancer suppression and stuff. So there are a lot of reasons why you should try and prioritise having a dark environment to sleep in. But then the, the impact that we as humans and our introduction of light into our environment is having on animals is something I want to bring up. Because in our Aboriginal knowledge systems and the way that skies relate to the land and relate to our animals and our plants, we are greatly impacting these species and their survivability as well as their relevance from our knowledge systems relating to skies to land because we are running into inconsistencies. 
So I want to bring attention to six animals in particular. So um, the first one's just sort of general. I've like listed loggerhead turtle, but really this is for most turtle species. They actually spend most of their time in the ocean, moving on land and onto beaches to be able to nest and orientate themselves. And if you know anything about, you know, turtles hatching, I've seen quite a few little videos of those little guys doing their best to uh, get towards the water. It's a very, very important process for their survivability in general, for them to be born and like in the little eggs onto, onto the beach. And then when they hatch, they are left on their own. And they have to do this little wading with their little hands, the little arms, sorry, the little voice is coming, but they're just so tiny and cute. And they have to wade across this sand. And I know a lot of humans see that and want to help them and just bring them to the water. But apparently that journey is so important because it's what teaches them how to swim when they get in the water. Because they'll be making those safe movements and they'll be hopping in and they'll be able to live. So you need, they need the best chance of making that journey across that beach to be able to survive. And so what's happening for um, there is a direct correlation between light being present on these beaches and having lower densities of these turtles actually nesting there. So when light is present in the turtles' environment on the beach, they are more likely to choose other spaces or to be driven off course by light present instead of making it to the ocean. So there are heaps of ways which many turtle species are suffering from light pollution in their environment. We also have heaps, many, many, many migratory birds or shorebirds who rely on light pollution for different cues, whether it be helping them to, um, uh, helping them in their sort of, I guess, like foraging, eating cycles or to help them on their uh, migratory pathway, path. Um, some of these birds travel the most absurd journeys across the world from down in Australia. And so what's happening is when we have lights present in their environments, it is causing significant death and injury from collisions, as well as also causing them to starve just from disrupting their usual foraging places. They, so many of these species are so reliant on light and dark cues, and these changes having so much light in their environment is relatively recent on the scale of evolution in the world. And one in particular, which I want to bring up because it just oh, it hurts, pulls at my heartstrings a bit, so our magpie birds, I know, have a bit of a bad rap for people who care about the AFL. And also uh, other people who care about the AFL probably adore them, right? I get it. I get it. And also magpies have a bit of a bad rap because they tend to swoop us in spring. But they're such a gorgeous, beautiful sounding bird. They are a native species. And unfortunately, they suffer so much from light being present in their environment. They are completely unable to sleep if there's light present. And unfortunately, are absolutely unable to sleep during the day. So for so many magpie species, particularly in urban areas, they are not getting any sleep. They are not able to recover the sleep. And it is causing significant issues, injuries and death for these birds. And there's heaps others as well. That's just the magpie. But there are so many where it's just the same story. Right. And then also a couple I want to bring up because these are some of the cutest animals I've seen in my life and have such a soft spot in my heart as beautiful mammals and marsupials that are native to these lands that you only find on this country. And uh, we are driving them to extinction. And that just scares me. I hate the fact that Australia is like the leading, the, what is it? We're like, the, we're holding like the world title for like the most mammal and marsupial deaths in the world. Like not something to be proud of is absolutely horrific. And we have such a unique landscape here. And so I just, 
you know, I feel like people aren't talking about this. It doesn't really impact humans. And that's why I, I need to be that annoying voice that brings this up because it has to be someone. And so, uh, so a couple of the ones that I want to point out. One is someone that we actually wrote about in the book Astronomy Sky Country as well, which I've read from today, which is the Tama wallaby. So a very beautiful wallaby. And unfortunately, artificial light in their environment is completely changing their breeding cycle. So it's putting them out of sync with food resources that they need to feed their young and new little babies, which is um, really horrifying. Light being present in your environment essentially cues them into thinking that maybe it might be summer earlier than it is. And what's happening is a lot of their young are being born into a time of year where there's no food. And so they're starving and that's very um, crushing, to be honest. And then also there's a really fascinating relationship between the bogon moth and the mountain pygmy possum. And the mountain pygmy possum is probably my current favourite animal because they are marvellous and so unique and something to absolutely be cherished and protected. So, for example, um, the mountain pygmy possum, poth, uh, possum. <laughs> there we go, mountain pygmy possum is, uh, only has three known populations in Australia. So three places where these guys exist. And they are teeny tiny. They fit in your hand. They are the smallest, cutest, little, tiny little possum. And they are the only marsupial in Australia that actually hibernates through winter. So they are so unique and unseen in other areas. They weigh, they weigh less than 80 grams. They are the tiniest little things, so precious. Um, and what's happening is that when they come, wake up from their hibernation, they need to have a very strong, consistent food source so that they can then get through the summer months and prepare for winter. They end up being like 35 grams, losing more than uh, half or double, you know, losing more than half their weight, right? They have to then gain, they have to then double their weight after hibernation, right? So it's very significant. So they have a very strong reliance on the bogon moth, which is actually their main food source. And the bogon moth is so sensitive to light cues that it is, they are just not present in their environment anymore. So these mountain pygmy possums are starting to starve because the bogon moths are being taken off course. Usually, um, I know there's a place in Mount Buller where there is a lot of, or at least home, Mount Buller is home to um, one of the populations of the mountie, mountain pygmy possum. Um, and there's been a significant reduction from <laughs> apparently those areas having over 4 billion moths to just last year, right, 4 billion moths as a key food resource for these beautiful little possums to only last year having only a few hundred left. We have gone from 4 billion to a few hundred, and this is a key food resource for a unique, gorgeous, precious little pygmy possum. So I just have to say there are so many, these are just a handful of species, there are so many other species that are impacted by light pollution, and so the solution is just light pollution is one of the easiest forms of um, pollution to handle. We literally just turn off the lights. And so um, there's some really amazing light lighting guidelines, which I would recommend for you to search up, which instruct you on how to best adapt your environment to make it more hospitable for native species. Really, this thing, these guidelines just say, look, just turn all the lights off. Start with darkness. Start with natural darkness and then think very carefully about what you want to fix in your environment. So what do you need to what do you need to illuminate? Um, so you start off with no darkness. You start lighting. Hey, look, I want to see on this path. I only need it to be directed downwards. You have to start having more directed lights, not lights that are spilling up and contributing to sky glow, but having fixed fixed fixtures. That was a weird um, combination of words. Um, that direct the light to exactly where you want to go. And also one of the best things you can do is actually for your outdoor lighting, having warm red lights instead of blue white. I know we like blue white. It's nice and bright and pretty cool, but it's just way too hot. 
and it really impacts our species greater than red light does. So yeah, I hope I've, in, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I hope I've, um, I don't know. I was going to say insight. That sounds like such a terrible word. I hope that I've inspired you all to look a bit more into light pollution, think about the environments you're in and the way they in impact animals, and have a think about your industry, your work, your area of knowledge, and see if there's a way that you can contribute to good change in this space. And so on that note, we're actually going to be signing off for the week. We're going to be back next week uh, with another show. Uh, but until then, take care and we will see you then. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders, showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.